how times have changed. But with young people, Dr. Alicia Porter, board member of the South African Society of Psychiatrists, things might just go back some 20, 30 years ago. Mental disorders among children are described as serious changes in the way children typically learn, behave, or handle their emotions, which cause distress and problems getting through the day. Many children occasionally experience fears and worries or display disruptive behaviors. If symptoms are serious and persistent and interfere with the school, home, or play activities, the child may be diagnosed with a mental disorder. Approximately one in seven children have a treatable mental health condition, but most will carry the burden through to adulthood due to South Africa's chronic lack of special, special, specialists and facilities to support their unique needs. In conversation with psychiatrists and a board member of the South African Society for Psychiatrists, Alicia Porter, she is concerned by how the COVID-19 pandemic has worsened already failing public mental health care for the country's 22 million children and teenagers. As the country wraps up a National Child Protection Week, Dr. Porter also highlights that South Africa only has approximately, listen to this, 30 specialists, 30 child specialists, and adolescent psychiatrists, most in private practice where access is limited by affordability while state-funded specialists and adolescent mental health facilities are only available in Gauteng, four units, KZN1, Western Cape 2, effectively one specialist for some 900,000 children. It's pouring water in a leaking bucket, isn't it, Alicia Porter? Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, good evening from Gezo. This is, and so as I was, this is so and as I was as I was listening to your song, I thought of a quote by Nelson Mandela, and I feel we're failing. He says there's no keener mm-hmm. revelation of a society's mm-hmm. soul and the way in which it treats its children. Absolutely. You're right. And and, and everything I've said here in this entry to have you speak to us is just effectively and a nation that doesn't have a future. I mean, there are many things, there are many points that one can raise here, but to the fact that we're talking about 30 child specialists in the country, 22 million children and teenagers, we're looking at one specialist for 900,000 children. We are never, on that present reading, ever going to get even anywhere close to a number that can then suggest we are winning the cause of addressing these treatable, let me say, disorders in children. And unfortunately, they manifest in adulthood when the damage one is done and the cost of treating at such a late stage is that much more expensive in a country whose resources are already finite. You know, 100%, and that's why I think we're going to need, you know, innovation and collaboration in order to fight this challenge or to rise to the challenge, Um, you know, because it does feel like a knife to a gunfight. But I do think that, you know, we do have a shortage of of specialists, but that's only one level of of care. And I think if we look at that, then there is a sense of hopelessness that prevails. But, you know, it can be multifaceted and there's things that we could do you know, on other levels of care in order that we don't get to a point where a child necessarily... Obviously, there are a percentage of children that have to see a specialist. 
But, you know, our health system currently is very reactive and it's geared towards crisis intervention. So only 5% of the national budget is spent on healthcare. And a lot of that is concentrated, you know, in hospital care. And with children and adolescents, they definitely need a multidisciplinary um, way of treating them. And they need continuity of care and they definitely need community care rather than necessarily hospital care. So it's going to require a paradigm shift even in the way we approach the problem in order for us to, you know, to make inroads in terms of treating the problem. And, and, and the fundamental paradigm shift that absolutely has to take place to essentially attend to the nation's quadruple burden of disease is for the country to engage less on responding to health care, let me call them questions, and attend to the maintenance of good quality life, engaging questions of prevention, engaging questions of healthy living, engaging issues of and about maintaining health as opposed to deploying resources that respond to where health is threatened. That's a seismic shift because it talks to policy, it talks to just the nation's behavior, and to an extent it even talks to the nation's advocacy programs, a lot of which would be found in South African universities and related structures, which essentially respond to responding to the threat to one's health as opposed to engage the question of maintaining good health. That shift is, is, is quite seismic. You know, 100%, and I think, though, it would cost less. In the long run, absolutely, it would. In the long run, you know, the cost um, in terms of primary prevention rather than crisis intervention is going to cost less, um, you know, and so, you know, primary prevention, early screening, early detection, it definitely is a more affordable way of, of managing um, health and promoting mental health um, and also just overall health rather than treating disease. And, it, you know, it is a seismic shift, but it can be done. And as I say, in the long run, it's definitely more an affordable way of, of, treating, um, of treating individuals. You know, with, with children... If you take a comprehensive history, you know, a lot of the time it can even start from the womb in terms of risk factors. And if we're constantly assessing risk and red flagging those most at risk and monitoring them more closely, we might be able to make a dent in some of the statistics and we may even be able to prevent the manifestation of diseases. But that's going to require sort of intervention at multiple, multiple levels. Where do we start? Where do we start? I mean, you are essentially talking about a healthcare revolution in this country. The closest to such that we have had in this country is the nation's response to COVID-19. That was a revolution quite like no other. Nobody who's alive has seen something like this, where at some point the nation literally ground to a complete halt for 21 days became 45 days when nobody could do anything but to respond to what we thought the challenges of COVID-19 would be. For the most part, one has seen 
and I say for the most part relative to the world and some of the ghastly statistics other nations have had to read out to their people. South Africa has dodged a bullet more than it has been hit by. That was revolutionary. Are we in a position to try and advocate for a revolution? Not necessarily a 45-day lockdown, but of the kind where the nation is brought on board, such resources are deployed, even using disaster management as the basis upon which to engage this, so that in the short term, we change the narrative, the thinking. Short to medium term, we sacrifice those people now who otherwise would be patients and in need of clinical care, so that in the long term, we can have a steady base of a healthy nation and where then the exception more than the rule would be for us to be reactive from a clinical perspective. Your thoughts on that? I mean, I think that in a South African context, I think that COVID has given us the opportunity to think about our mental health care, um, you know, and think about our mental health because there's been such an increase in you know, mental health struggles across the board, both adults and and children. So I think it's given us an opportunity to actually stop and think about changing the narrative. And I think one of the places to start um, would be within the family unit, for example, where we start to promote, um, you know, healthy lifestyles, not just for the adult members of the family, but also just, you know, taking it one step further where we empower parents in terms of parenting skills, in terms of upskilling, um, you know, but even just things like promoting quality family time, promoting activities as a family together, just things like eating dinner and, you know, because if you strengthen the family, you strengthen the nation. So even before we go outside of and look beyond, you know, outside of the family unit, it's about how do we begin to strengthen the family unit, which has really struggled during this period of COVID because of so many shifts and so many changes and so many disruptions, you know, within the family system. So the family, I think, would be the first place to start, and it's something that can be done. You know, we don't need capex for that. We don't need budget for that. Um, we just need um, a transfer of, of skills. Like when we see children in our child and adolescent unit, we insist that parents participate in what we call parental counseling. We, we teach them just basic parenting skills, which, you know, don't always come naturally or it's things that you know, but it's, it's an opportunity to solidify. So we treat the child, but we also um, treat within a family intervention. I think the next level of intervention would be within our schooling system because we're going to need a collaboration between health education and also social development. So within the school curriculum, you know, teachers are definitely our eyes and ears on the ground. They are really a resource that we can use within the health sector because teachers are usually the people who pick up their children are struggling, for example. So if we can train teachers in, you know, how to screen for basic mental health problems, we can um, skill them or train them in basic counseling skills. We can incorporate mental health into the curriculum. You know, we, we do mental health skills training. We teach them coping skills. And that's how we're going to build resilience. If we move out of that, then we now move into, for example, the community, 
where we again um, we invest more in primary health care, community services, you know, hubs of you know, treatment hubs where we train, for example, primary care nurses in how to screen for, you know, just not to necessarily treat, but just to screen and red flag vulnerable um, children and mental health conditions. And then if we go then further up the ladder, we definitely need to update our policy and there needs to be a greater investment and prioritization of child and adolescents. Before we even go there, I mean, you've just essentially made a strong case for community health workers who not necessarily have medical or related health qualifications in the traditional sense, but have everything that is required in a given society and in terms of pooling of time and reason time more than anything time and energy and running messages campaigns advocacy is probably a better word to engage these very questions that prevent then something manifesting that requires clinical intervention so healthcare workers in this country has a lot of scope don't you say a hundred percent but i think it's how we use the resource um you know that ultimately will determine so if we sort of use the the resources that we have adequately um, and optimally, I think we can see a shift without too much, um, without too much necessarily in terms of financial um, resources. But it's about just an adequate, optimal use of of the resources that that we have. Twenty-one twenty-seven. We engage with Dr. Alicia Porter, board member of the South African Society of Psychiatrists. Any questions, any comment, any voice note, we'd certainly appreciate hearing that. Johannesburg 714-2006, that's the number to dial, 614 That's the WhatsApp facility, either voice note or a text message. Let's talk about mothers and fathers and families that live with a child with a mental disorder. A lot of the time there's misdiagnosis, if diagnosis at all. The child bears the brunt of that misdiagnosis. Worse, if there's no diagnosis at all, the child is labeled anything from being naughty and being hyperactive or just not responsive to instruction. And the culture of disciplining in this country often responds to that child in a manner that is at variance with what the child would need as a response. Is that a fair assessment of things? It is because children are so complex. They're not little adults, you know, and the way they present um, is very different to, to adults because children can't articulate how they feel, so they act out. So oftentimes what looks like naughty or just going through a phase may actually be a mental health concern. You know, for example, you know, depression in a child looks very different to depression in an, an adult where... The first time that it's taken seriously or noticed, not necessarily a depression, but that there's something wrong, is when there's a decline or a deterioration in their um, academic performance. But it may, you know, look like in a younger child just irritability or tantrums or, you know, recurrent complaints of stomach ache or headache. Um, they may have disturbances in their sleeping patterns, their eating patterns. 
um, their energy levels where they may have in, enjoyed, you know, extramural activities and mm. they suddenly don't want to do them, mm. um, or just isolating themselves, you know. So it looks quite different um, in children, and so it's often missed or often dismissed, and this leads to, you know, untreated mental health um, problems, which, you know, definitely lead to greater chance of, you know, physical and mental health problems in adulthood. It leads to substance use problems. And actually it just leads to an overall failure to launch, which can have even economic consequences where there's definitely um, less in the way of, you know, or it could just be economic failure. And so untreated mental health conditions in children definitely has long-term consequences. How do we empower homes to be a little more responsive? How do we empower schools then to be that much more responsive for between the home and the school? Five out of seven days in a week, you just about account for every hour of that child. Surely then, and, and this is not to pass the responsibility from home to the teacher because the teacher in this country is under tremendous pressure. There are more social workers than there are teachers, frankly. But to the extent that that is now the position, if the child is not at home, he or she is more likely to be at school five out of seven days in a week. How do we empower those critical spaces then to be, say, a little more aware, a little more responsive? How do we deploy effective resources to engage this question? That's my final question to you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why it's so important to train teachers because a lot of the time, you know, a large percentage of the referrals that we get and our clinics comes because a teacher has noticed that there's, you know, a problem with the child. They might not necessarily know what the problem is, but they see that there's a decline. And if we were to train them, you know, in terms of what to look out for, I think it would be an effective use of resources. Because like you say, teachers are really stressed and they definitely are more social workers and peer, you know, um, substitute parents and, you know, that they really are under a tremendous amount of pressure. But I think some training or some investment in training for teachers and upskilling of teachers would really go a long way, especially to empower them to be able to effectively carry out, you know, their their roles as 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 um, teachers. So I definitely think training and even just equipping them with some basic counseling skills because sometimes it's just a child feeling heard or listened to um, that might not necessarily require referral. Um, you know, in talking to some, you know, teachers along the way, they say, you know, they wish they had more skills um, to deal with, with what they're dealing with and also just kind of training in terms of when to refer and when you'd be comfortable to continue just um, talking or rendering some basic counselling services. It's, it's a tall ask, yes, but I do know that you know the teachers within South Africa are really giving of, of their time and they mm. want you know they they want to see children succeed and I think a little investment in their training would go a really long way. Let's leave it there. Yeah. Sobering conversations there, Miss Alicia Porter, Doctor Alicia Porter, board member of the South African Society of Psychiatrists. Ma'am, thank you very much for your time. The time is 21.33. We have one more conversation to go after this very short break.